the parallels between biological evolution and cultural evolution also allow us to borrow tools from evolutionary biology to the study of cultural variation. One approach is the comparative method. We can look at different societies living in different environments and see if their behaviour varies in the way that we would predict given a different environment. And there's a certain amount of evidence that cultures can be related through a branching tree-like pattern in a very similar way to the way species are related on trees of species, which means that some of the comparative methods that have been designed to test evolutionary hypotheses across species can also be used in anthropology to test evolutionary hypotheses about evolution across cultures, and some of these do seem to work quite well. In fact, the basis of anthropology always has been some element of cross-cultural comparison. Another approach is to look at variation not across different populations, but within a single population. The tools of behavioural ecology that are really looking at within a population, what causes variation in reproductive success, that's been applied very usefully to humans. So basically, who's having more babies than somebody else? Whose children are dying more or less than somebody else? And how does this correlate with various environmental features? And that will help us make models of what are the costs associated with living in a particular environment, what kind of behaviours lead to the highest reproductive success. Certainly, as far as reproduction is concerned, human females pose something of a puzzle for evolutionary biologists. We have a slightly different life history, so we have a very long childhood. Then we have a period of reproduction that seems to be quite hectic in that females have very short interbirth intervals. They have babies every three years or so, which for a primate of an ape of our size is quite unusual. I mean, maybe an orangutan of similar size might not have a birth, but every six to eight years. And then females, but not males, have menopause at the age of about late 40s, early 50s, when reproduction ceases altogether, but they're still at least 20 years normally, of post-reproductive life. What aspects of being a human have led to this unusual life history, which is so different from that of our nearest common ancestors? One hypothesis that's been put forward by a number of people is this idea that humans are actually cooperative breeders to some extent. So the reason you can reproduce at such a high rate is because you're being supported either by a male partner. So in primates, males don't generally provision at all, whereas in humans, males bring back food. They're subsidising their spouse's reproduction. But there's also been a belief that you're supported by wider kin, especially grandmothers. And if grandmothers are important, it might be that menopause is actually an adaptation to grandmothering in that after a certain age, it's better to stop investing in your own immediate reproductive success and help your daughters or even your sons reproduce, then it's very noticeable that as you go through childhood as a woman, as you hit puberty, your mother is more or less hitting menopause. As you hit menopause, your mother is more or less dying. So it's almost as if there's this three stages of life, which are all part of a big cooperative enterprise to maximise the inclusive fitness, in other words, get the genes out there that can do that. In collaboration with the Medical Research Council, 
Mace and her colleagues have been collecting data on reproductive patterns in rural Gambia. Their results, confirmed by several studies, show that other women do help with the rearing of children. In particular, having maternal grandmothers available significantly improves the survival chances of children. Mothers may also rely on older children, especially daughters, to help care for younger siblings. So it looks as though female relatives who aren't themselves reproducing, whether because they haven't yet reached puberty or because they've already hit the menopause, can help mothers in child rearing. The tendency for such investment from relatives on the mother's side is precisely what evolutionary theory would predict. If you have children by more than one male in your lifetime, either because you change mates during your lifetime or because there's paternity uncertainty, so maybe there's some extra pair mating outside of marriage, then on average a mother's going to be more closely related to her offspring than the putative father and therefore her relatives on average are going to be more closely related to female relatives' offspring than they are to male relative offspring because they just don't always know whether they really are exactly their offspring. So, for example, estimates of maybe 10% of children are not fathered by the person that they might have thought they'd been fathered by, that can generate a 10% bias. And that seems to be what we see. So we don't know the mechanism for the bias. It's really just that evolutionary theory predicted that such a bias would exist, and we see it in the data. The role of different relatives in child survival has been studied in populations spanning Europe, North America, Africa, Asia and the Caribbean. It turns out that the contribution of certain relatives may vary with the ecological context. For instance, the father's contribution to child survival appears to be more important in hunter-gatherer societies than in agricultural communities. From what we know of hunter-gatherer society, infanticide was a common risk and not having a father alive could be putting children at great risk of infanticide because children are very costly. We think that raising children in agricultural communities is probably less costly than raising them in hunter-gatherer communities. Hunter-gatherer children are very dependent on input from their parents right up to their teenage years. And if you don't have two parents willing to feed you, then the community might not want you around. Whereas in agricultural communities, they can often help with the farming enterprise from a quite a young age, and so they can start paying back their costs a little bit earlier which also probably explains why farming communities have larger families than hunter-gatherers, because the costs of children are actually possibly a little bit less. A range of population studies has shown that we humans have evolved flexible family systems that vary with ecological conditions. This seems to make adaptive sense, because by spreading the responsibility of childcare over a number of individuals a mother minimises the risk of losing childcare support should any one relative die before she herself has finished reproducing. But our own patterns of reproduction are changing and new questions have begun to emerge. From the Open University, 
For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.